You know, we've all probably heard of the concept of false advertising, right? There's probably been a situation in your life where, where maybe you heard of a product or a good or maybe even a food item that you wanted to consume. Maybe you're watching a commercial for a tasty burger and you get excited as you see those thick patties being put on the buns. So you muster up the, the, the excitement to go in your car and head to that restaurant only to order that same item and open the packaging and it looks a little bit different than what the commercial showed, right? False advertising. When something isn't quite what you thought it to be. I think there's these other images that I got off the internet of other examples of false advertising. Here you have a berry loaf where the image shows uh, bread packed with berries, right? You get a single berry off that one. Kids seem to be great victims at false advertising. The next photo, I think, shows a balloon that you could buy for your children that makes it look like it's an alien. Yeah, not quite, right? <laughs> I think I have at least one more there for you. We've all probably had this problem, right? Where the ice cream truck comes around and we get excited and we're going to get our Tweety Bird ice cream and it doesn't quite look like Tweety Bird. Well, I have a personal story of false advertising. Uh, if you didn't know this, I, I grew up, I'm, I, I was born in the 80s, but I grew up in the 90s, so I'm like kind of the quintessential millennial 90s kid. And in the early 90s, one of the most popular things going on right now, and just kind of curious, any, any parents raised their kids around the 90s out there? So, so maybe if you had a boy especially, you know this, but the, the really popular thing going around at that, that time was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, they're still around, so if you have kids now, maybe, maybe the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are still a thing in your household. Well, they were a thing in my household. Everything had to be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. My mattress coverings, my underwear, everything was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Well, as you can imagine, Halloween's rolling around. Well, what do you think I want to be? I want to be one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I want to be Raphael or Donatello or somebody like that. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> even though I wanted to be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, there's a little bit of false advertising going on in my family. You see, my mom and dad went out to find me a costume, but they couldn't find a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle costume because they had all sold out. So panicking and trying to figure out what to do for this poor child that wants to be a teenage ninja turtle and is desperate to do this, they do the next best thing. And they find a turtle outfit. <laughs> so they buy a turtle outfit and they give me a turtle outfit and I'm a full-on turtle for Halloween. And I asked my sister back in Florida to try to find the photo of me, and unfortunately she couldn't unearth it. But you'll just have to take my word for it that when you look at this photo, I'm just like this. <laughs> Holding my mom's hand. <laughs> As I realize I'm not the turtle I thought I was going to be. 
I was a victim of false advertising. (laughs) But maybe you have been too. Maybe you have been too. So what does this really have to do with today and do with the story that we're going to be talking about in the book of James? I think James in some ways confronts this issue of false advertising. And not just false advertising with hamburgers or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle costumes, but false advertising with something else, specifically with our faith. You see, we as, as people of this earth, Christian or not, we all struggle with what we call a sin problem, do we not? Where each and every single one of us is born with this inherent nature to sin and to go against what God had originally designed and created for each and every single one of us. So because of this, we in some ways are operating outside of the true nature of what God wa- or who God wants us to be and how God designed us to live. But it's particularly a problem when we call ourselves Christians, but yet when we do not line up with how Scripture calls us to live or how God calls us to live. Chances are there has been a moment in your life where you have been hurt or you have hurt somebody and have failed to live up to the standard that God is calling you to live. There's this famous quote that is oftentimes attributed to Gandhi, but it most likely comes from an Indian philosopher called Baradada, who used to say this, Jesus is ideal and wonderful, but you Christians, you are not like him. When I hear those words, it tends to kind of hit me in the heart a little bit. Because I realize that there are moments in my life where I'm not lining up with where God wants me to be. You see, I think the book of James directly wrestles with this issue. If you didn't know, well, just to give you a little background about the book of James, is some, some scholars believe that it is perhaps one of the oldest books in the New Testament, meaning that it was probably one of the earlier ones written, and the dating of it kind of varies, but some people think that it's most likely written in the early 40s, so just maybe 10 years or less after Jesus died and resurrected. And it's an interesting book because it's one of the few books in the New Testament that was written to kind of the whole entire church, specifically the Jewish people, the diaspora as it was called, so the, the people that were kind of spread apart from Palestine and out into other regions. And James writes this letter out to the whole entire church versus many of Paul's letters which are written to specific churches. And it's kind of a controversial book, specifically because the book of James really hits on this idea of your deeds, your works. Some of it can be summed up in James 1.22, which we'll put on the screen, that says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
And this is very much a common theme in the book of James, where he's calling God's people to line up to be not just listeners of the words, but doers of the words. And it's for this reason that this book has in some ways become controversial for theologians throughout the ages. Not because that message is lost on them, but rather because so many people have been gripped with trying to pursue God in such a way that they obtain their own righteousness, that grace is lost. So, for example, the great reformer Martin Luther, he put the book of James as kind of secondary in his Bible. Because for him, he lived in a world where religion was harsh and hard and you had to be able to earn your righteousness. And for that reason, when he read this book, it kind of confronted him in such a way that he didn't like it. Because this book speaks directly to the way that we are living. Are you just a listener of God's Word? Or are you a doer of God's Word? So we're going to be talking about this throughout the rest of this series because you see, I think one of the the good things that has happened in our society, at least within the Christian movement in the last 500 years, is we've, we've continued to, in some ways, Um, preach a message of grace where we tell people about the grace of God. But in some ways we have done that to the discredit of living out our faith. Where we use God as fire insurance. Where we use God as as kind of the, the magic fairy dust that we sprinkle over all of our faults and all of the things that we do wrong. And because of that, we end up false advertising to the world of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live out our faith. So again, we're going to be in the book of James, so go ahead, if you have your Bibles, open up to James chapter 1, and we're just going to read eight verses today. We're going to go through those. I will be putting most of them on the screen for you. So James 1.1. If you need help getting there, James is right after the book of Hebrews. So James 1.1 says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So we're going to go through verse 8, but I want to stop there for a second here. So it says, James, again, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's missing from this introduction? Now, I don't expect you to know the answer, but one of the things that I think is interesting about this introduction is, you see, if you didn't know, James, the author of this book, is most likely James, the half-brother of Jesus. 
Now, if you look into world history, one of the common things that you see is that lineages are important. When you think about kingdoms, you think about heirs of those kingdoms, right? And you think about royal blood. But yet, when James introduces this book, does he refer at all to his relationship, to his blood relationship with his brother Jesus? Not at all. Instead, how does he identify himself? He identifies himself as a servant of God. Specifically, that word servant in the Greek, doulios, can be translated as slave as well, and that would still be considered a faithful translation. So James in this moment is literally saying that I am a servant, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. Not the thing that you would expect of someone who is related to Jesus himself. See, one of the beautiful things about the early Christian movement that actually gives its credence in history is the fact that so many of its founders decided to diminish their position, lower themselves. So here you immediately see that from James, who instead of using his 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 relationship with Jesus as a way to create honor for himself simply calls himself a servant, a slave of Christ. So James is writing this letter with that kind of heart and he again writes it to the Jewish people that are scattered across the, the, the nations and specifically more appropriately said to the church. You see, there's a sense in this book just by kicking off that there is a struggle that many of the people are having of a lack of feeling like they're home. That is, they're outside of their home motherland. And for that reason, James is writing them to confront them, but also to encourage them for that reason. But what really is home? Home is more than a physical place, right? You know, sometimes we talk about home and, and we talk about what makes home so meaningful. And Sheila, I'm sure you're thinking about that right now. And it probably, even though in part it can be a house because you've made memories in those house, it's oftentimes the people that you made those memories with, right? C.S. Lewis, writing about home, says, If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The Jewish people in this time would have probably related to that because they would have been experiencing a sense of of feeling like they were out of, of their home, out of a place that was comfortable and normal to them. But yet, in the midst of that kind of situation, James says these next words, "'Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters,' verse 2, "'brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance.'" Again, I think this is very strange for a letter to start off. James is immediately going into this this conversation of what? Trials. He's getting right to the point. And what should this tell you, church, if you're here today? I think this should tell you that 
we are going to face trials in life, right? That if there is one guarantee in life, it's that we're going to face hard times, that we're going to go through situations in life that cause us to feel uncomfortable, that challenge us, that put us in a situation that we feel unpleasant by it. That is a guarantee in this world, whether you are Christian or otherwise. And if you've heard a gospel message that says, well, all you have to do is come to Jesus and all your problems go away, you've been told in some ways a false gospel. The truth is, is that each and every single one of us will face problems in our life. I mean, look no further than Jesus, right? Do you think Jesus, who was perfect, who was the Lamb of God, He Himself faced so many different trials in His own life. So we need to very quickly recognize that each and every single one of us will face trials. But I think what continues to be odd in the way that James writes this is he says, what about trials? How are we supposed to consider the trials that we go through in life? And you could put that verse back on the screen if you would, Abel. He says, consider it with what? Say it with me. Pure joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't met very many people when they're faced with hardships in their life, jumping up and down, saying, oh, I'm so excited that I get to go through this next problem in life. Now, I think if I did meet a person like that, I'd probably want to slap them in the face. (laughs) But yet James is saying in this letter to do what? To consider it pure joy. Do you consider your problems pure joy? When you're faced with the hardships that you're going through in life, when you're dealing with family situations, when you're dealing with situations that are just personal to you, when you're dealing with your health issues, when you're dealing with work-related affairs, whatever you are going through, do you think about those things and and say, oh my goodness, this is my time to consider it pure joy. I'm so happy. (laughs) No. But yet here... We are encouraged to consider it pure joy. Why is that? Why does James encourage us to do that? To consider the experiences that we go through in life and the trials that we face with pure joy. You see, one of my favorite things to do in life is to be able to help defend the faith. We call this apologetics to be able to give reasons for the faith that we have. And that's one of the passions that I have in life, and it's why in seminary school I concentrated in that. And uh, you've heard me talk about this before. But you see, I think one of the most beautiful things that we can do as Christians is be able to get God's Word correctly. And see, one of the problems that we, we oftentimes hear is if God loves me, if God cares about me, then why would He allow this pain and this suffering in my life? I mean, we've all asked that question and have heard that question before. 
And in some ways, I think there are some great answers out there on why it is that we sometimes go through pain and suffering. And I think the short abbreviated version of that is because we live in a fallen world, but the Lord still loves us enough to be able to offer us grace and redemption. But the reality is, is that we still question, right? And here we see James trying to push his listener to understand that you need to be able to to just accept the fact that you are going to go through trials. Church, you are going to go through trials of many different kinds, but you need to also realize that in the midst of those trials that God does not waste them. You see, we often think that trials are a waste of our time, don't we not? We think that if all, in order to get to the better, happier places of life, that we need to be able to push aside trials. So we try to navigate life in such a way that we minimize trials in order to maximize the pleasures that we pursue. But in reality, what oftentimes we end up missing is that our trials give us an opportunity to grow our faith. This is why James is is trying to let his reader know that you are to consider it pure joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In other letters in the Bible, it talks about how perseverance ultimately leads to good character that allows us to be strong and ready for anything. So when you are going through the trials in life, one of the beautiful things about our faith is we can know that the Lord does not waste any opportunities, that He can use the situations that you are going through to bring about a good end. Now, that's hard to accept. I get it. And I'm not trying to say that you then should look for troubles in your own life. But what I am trying to say is that are you living with that kind of perspective where you see your troubles as an opportunity to be able to grow your faith? To understand that, yes, it is difficult to go through what I'm going through, but to say, you know what, the Lord is calling me to have joy in it. Because through it, I believe He is going to make a better person out of me and develop a better character in me. Because I think if you can do that, then the way that you go through your problems look differently. Because again, We're guaranteed these problems. And I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy being around people that are constantly Debbie Downers with their problems, right? What a witness is it then when we in the midst of our problems can still find joy? I think that that is such a light for other people to be able to see your faith in. That in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your questioning, in the midst of your unresolved issues, to be able to find joy in those situations can be a beacon of hope to other people. Because in those situations, you're reminding people that ultimately the Lord is in control. The Lord wants us 
to grow in the image of Christ. And I think one of the best ways for us to be able to do that is to simply look to Him in the midst of our struggles. You know, unfortunately, what ends up oftentimes happening is we as people, we just want the good things from God. We just want the blessings from God. And while many of us have heard that the prosperity gospel is not a gospel worthy of of pursuing, we fail to realize that functionally we still in some ways are, are, are expecting that and living that out in ourselves. Where we look to God for just constant therapy, where we look for God for constant blessings. And in some ways when we do that, And when we forget that God cares about our character and God cares about the way that we are living and God cares about us being able to confront the the trials and the temptations that we go through in life with positivity and triumph through His name, then we do do something that's terrible. And that is, is we cheapen God's grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite um, writers, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote this in The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Church, have you cheapened God's grace? Or have you allowed the grace of God to be a gift to you that gives you the strength to be able to go through life knowing that He loves you and that He is there for you? What's interesting is is that when we continue to read through verses 8, Eight, it says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And right there, the Lord is trying to show that through doing these works, you become mature and complete as Christians. And then it kind of takes a weird transition and it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. When I was getting back into running just a few years ago, I remember um, a a moment very distinctly. I had recently joined a, a, a runner's group and it was through an invitation of a friend. And this group was kind of very intense with how, how much they ran. They were marathon runners, so they would run 26.2 miles regularly. And I remember they invited me to, to go a part of a run. And they said that they were going to run somewhere in the ballpark to six to nine miles. And that was four or five miles more than I ever did in my life. <laughs> So we had to work, wake up at an absurdly early time and be ready on, to run at around 4.30 in the morning. And I remember just kind of sizing up people around me and looking around and, and not trying to let my true colors show that I wasn't really a part of them, 
that I wasn't as good as them. So we start to, you know, warm up and, and get ourselves going and we hit, hit the run. And I'm feeling pretty good and I'm getting through each mile pretty well. And just about at mile three, I recognize that for the most part, every single mile after this will be more miles than I've ever run in my life. That every step is further than I've ever gone on a single run without stopping. And I remember thinking how cool that was in that moment that I was challenging my body to do something that I had never done before. And look, it's nothing to write a book about. Some people have run over 100 miles in one go. But at least in this moment, it felt interesting to me. But shortly after that feeling of, man, this is so cool, it starts to turn into, oh my gosh, I think I hit that wall. And I'm feeling pain all over my body. I'm feeling specifically achy in my legs. And my legs kind of feel like lead as I try to kind of get them off the ground. And the running group who was doing a light pace for them that day starts to just go further and further. And I start to fall further and further behind. And I'm ready to start moving into a walk. And I remember the gentleman that invited me into this group, he looks back and he sees me far away. And he's kind enough to run back towards me and then run alongside me. And we're running and I barely could talk. I'm actually upset that he's running beside me because he's very chatty. And I'm feeling so uncomfortable, and I'm like, just stop talking because I don't want to listen and I don't want to (laughs) respond. But I remember in that moment, he told me something that I wouldn't forget. And he said, the pain that you are experiencing right now, it's most likely not going to get any worse than whatever it is you're going through right now. So if you can just accept it, accept whatever you're feeling and just accept it, you'll go further than you've ever gone. And hearing those words were not comforting. Because <laughs> what I wanted him to say is I wanted him to say, the pain's about to go away. This is all you have to go through. That's what I wanted to hear. But instead, he told me the truth. And he told me that the pain, this is as bad as it's going to be, you just need to accept it. So I did. I accepted that pain, and I kept on running, and eventually one mile went by, then two miles, and then the pain did start to go away. And then I started to feel this second wind in my legs, and we went even more, three mile, four mile, five mile, until we hit around nine miles, and I felt like I could keep on going even more. Now, that's not every day that I go out and run, but at least in that moment, it was true. And I realized that that situation, what was going on in that situation, was he was imparting wisdom into me. You see, he was an experienced runner, and he had the knowledge and the understanding of how to run well. And in this moment, he was offering me his wisdom. And I took that wisdom and I applied it, and because of that, I was able to do more than I thought I could do. 
So when we read in the Scriptures, all of a sudden uh, it changes, that James changes to this talk about lacking wisdom and that if you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and that it will be given to you. Perhaps the Lord is saying, I get your trials. I understand your situations that you are going through and I am inviting you to bring your troubles to me. And in here we see a promise from the Lord. There's many promises in the Bible and I believe that this is one of them. That God gives generously to all without finding fault. Church, I believe I've worked hard to try to encourage each of you to be able to pursue the Lord and to understand His truths. But I know that in my own life, I don't always apply the things that I know. And I don't always take up God on His promises. And I believe that chances are, if I'm not doing it, then you're not doing it. Are you asking the Lord for wisdom in your life? When you're going through your trial, when you're going through your rough situation, do you ask God for His wisdom? You know, some simple ways that I think you can ask the Lord for wisdom is I think there's two ways that you can, you can do this. You can go to God, or you can go to God's people. You can go to God, or you can go to God's people. Let me break both of those down for you. You can go to God by going to God in prayer, by going to God in His Word, by allowing those two things to be able to influence your perspective. I can't tell you how many times. I mean, just even yesterday, I, I, my, my wife just kept on asking me, Kevin, are you okay? Kevin, what's wrong? And she's asking me a question that honestly I don't know how to give an answer to. And she just sensed in me a, uh, that there was something wrong in my life, that I was dealing with anxiety or something else, and I didn't even fully register it. And my wife, and in, in, instead of just kind of trying to talk it out with me, she immediately said, well, why don't we put on some worship music and pray? And we began to pray, and it was almost like in that moment the Holy Spirit opened up a veil, and I can see very clearly what was wrong. We need to be able to go to God. The other thing is going to God's people. What do I mean by that? Well, the brothers and sisters who you know are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because you see, the thing is, is if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then that means that the Lord is living inside of you. And that means that, that because the Lord is living inside of you, that you are able to offer things up to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Church family, I need you. And everybody in this room, you need each other. We need the gifts that each other has been entrusted in by the Holy Spirit in order to be able to minister to one another. I can't tell you how many times 
That has been true for my life. I mean, just the example I gave is an example of the Lord using the Holy Spirit through my wife to be able to minister to me. Are you leaning on your brothers and sisters in Christ? And if not, why? Going to God's people can also mean reading good books from godly people. Like the cost of discipleship from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. (laughs) And listening to good sermons could be another way of going to God's people. And I hope that by you coming here on Sundays, you're able to, to in some ways leave a little bit better than where you came. You know, the finishing verses out, they say this, it says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is a double-minded and unstable in all they do. That's hard to hear. But as we've learned before in this church, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And God is happy to work with us in our doubts. But we can't be the kind of people that are perpetually doubting on things that the Lord has given us wisdom and resolve with. You see, this in some ways is also why we need to go through trials. Because trials afford us the opportunity of memory. It it affords us the opportunity of struggling through a situation in order for that in some ways to be fixed in our mind. So just like I bring up that story about running to you, well that story is fixed in my mind. And now every single time I run and I feel that, that feeling of pain, I remember that moment and I get through it. So in a similar way, we need to be able to look back at the trials that we have faced, take category of it, and allow the Lord to minister to us in the midst of that situation so that we don't constantly become doubting, double-minded people that are perpetually dealing with the same exact problems over and over again. I think that's what James wanted the people of this letter to be able to understand. And ultimately, it leads to the single point that I have today. And don't worry, I don't, I'm not, that, that doesn't mean we're at, at halfway at the sermon. We're actually at the end of it. <laughs> and that is, is that God deeply cares about your growth. God deeply cares about your growth. God wants to see you grow. God wants to use your troubles to grow. And I believe that your growth will bring you closer to God and will also further the mission of God here on earth. But we as people need to be able to, 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 to trust that, to accept that, to go to God when we need wisdom, to go to our brothers and sisters when we need help. And I think if we are willing to do that, then we can truly look at the trials that we go through with pure joy, realizing that in that situation, we will persevere, we will grow, and we will come to look 
more and more like Christ. Amen? Let's pray.